0: Well, we come to hear uh, God's word tonight, and uh, Joel has been leading us in a series on Zechariah, and so I thought, well, I'll just continue uh, the next chapter, which is chapter two. We keep studying Zechariah here in the evening service, um, so I'll be preaching on Zechariah chapter two, which is the vision of a man with a measuring line. So hear now the word of the Lord which is found in page 943 in your church Bibles. Zechariah lifted his eyes and saw, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. And then I said, where are you going? He said to me, measure Jerusalem to see what its width and what, its, what it is its length. And behold, the angel who talked with me came forward, and another angel came forward to meet him and said to him, Run, say to that young man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. And I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst. Up, up, flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord. For I have spread you abroad as the four winds of the heavens, declares the Lord. Up, escape to Zion, you who dwell with the daughter of Babylon. For thus said the Lord of hosts, after his glory sent me to the nations who plundered you. For he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. Behold, I will shake my hand over them, and they shall become plunder for those who served them. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come, and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day, and they shall be my people, and I will dwell in your midst. And you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And the Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the Holy Land, and will again choose Jerusalem. Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for he has roused himself for his, from his holy dwelling. And so we come now to um, God's word with a word of uh, prayer and a moment of silence as we ask for his help in understanding uh, this word. Let's pray. Gracious God and Father in heaven, you have spoken to us. You have spoken uh, to the people of Israel all those years ago. And um, we pray that you would take what you have said, that you would give us understanding, that your Spirit might open the eyes of our hearts, that we might fully realize and understand what this text means, that you might use it to challenge us if we need to be challenged, that you might also use it to comfort us if we need comforting. And so we pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts that believe your word and help me as I explain it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the book of Zechariah is filled with dreams. We all have dreams. Some are good, some are strange, some are bad. I've had some strange dreams over the years. You probably don't want to know about them, but I'll tell you anyways. As a kid, I had this weird nightmare that, you know, the room was filling up with apples and I was drowning in apples. That was a strange one. The most common dream I have is um, this recurring dream. It always involves forgetting something in the pulpit, either my sermon or some <laughs> article of clothing. And most preachers uh, have that dream, I'm told. Sometimes we have dreams where uh, we, we feel... Um, relieved when we wake up other times we have dreams where we're not relieved to wake up think of those dreams where you're on a tropical beach and you're enjoying uh, you're putting your feet in the sand and then you wake up and it's exam day or you wake up and and you have to go to work and um, I hate those kinds of dreams here in our passage Zechariah he he's having he has this incredible dream it's not like the kinds of dreams that we have This is a divine dream given to him. And in this divine dream, God gives him an incredible message. But when he wakes from the dream, when the vision is over, he faces a difficult, challenging reality. And so those are our three points here. There's Solomon, uh, we're not in Ecclesiastes, Uh, Zechariah has a difficult reality that he's facing uh, he has an incredible dream or vision, and a reliable message comes from it. So let's start, about, start with this difficult reality. And I want to explain some of the context here, as Joel has explained some of it in the past uh, couple weeks. The year was 586 BC. This is 586 years before the coming of Christ. Jerusalem is surrounded by armies. Citizens of Jerusalem are trapped in the city. There is no escape. The walls um, eventually are broken down. The city gate is set on fire, and armies basically flood into the city, start capturing men and women and children, and hauling them off into exile, taking them away from their homes and their families and their livelihoods. Friends and family are separated, mothers ripped from daughters, sons from fathers. It's a, a really and truly tragic time in Israel's history. And then 70 years pass by. God only uh, told Israel that they would be in exile for 70 years because of their sin. After 70 years, the Persian king Cyrus, he's come into power. And under Cyrus and then later Darius, these exiles are eventually given the right to go back home to their, their land. But remember, it's been 70 years and most of the people who were carted off to exile in the first place, they've died. And so it's the, the children and the grandchildren that are returning to Jerusalem. And they have no idea what Jerusalem is going to be like because it's been more than 70 years. And most of these kids haven't even seen Jerusalem before. They've only heard about Jerusalem from grandma and grandpa and, and mom and dad. And so they make this long journey back to the city. What do they see? Rubble. The city gates have been burnt down, according to Nehemiah. The temple is a pile of stones. The city is completely destroyed. Uh, crops and fields and vineyards had laid fallow for, for many years, so it's, they, they had to replow the land if they ever wanted to um, produce any more c- crops. Difficult times. I remember my grandparents telling me the, the story of how they came to Canada. They had great hopes and dreams and expectations. They were going to move to Canada. They were going to start a better life for themselves. And it took four weeks, nearly four weeks, for them to cross the Atlantic Ocean. They thought that they would immediately get a job when they got to Canada, everyone would love them, and that they would have a happy life. But when they got to Canada, they realized that it wasn't all roses and daisies. The Canadians didn't like them. They didn't speak Dutch. They didn't speak English. They spoke Dutch. The Canadians, believe it or not, weren't quite as friendly as they thought. And there weren't many jobs for them, except for the jobs that no one else wanted to do. Living in Canada wasn't exactly what they expected. Now I say that by way of comparison, these, these Jewish men and women, they had high hopes and expectations and dreams about going back to God's, uh, the City of God in the Promised Land. But when they returned to the land that they thought would be flowing with milk and honey, they realized that all it was was rubble and ashes. It wasn't what they expected. And can you imagine, you know, the first group of exiles as they returned to the city. They didn't have any of these things that we take for granted. Running water. Refrigerated food. Food from the shops. Heating in the cold. Locks on their doors. They didn't have these things. Resources were hard to come by. They didn't have fields or vineyards to produce food. They had to rebuild their homes uh, from that that had been destroyed in the war. There were no city walls. And if you know anything about the ancient world, the city walls are incredibly important. The city walls are the, the first line of defense against bandits and invaders and foreign armies. And so they weren't really safe either. They would have been discouraged by what they saw. And they would have been overwhelmed and discouraged by the task that was ahead of them: rebuilding the city. The scene in Jerusalem was so discouraging that it was incredibly hard to, to convince the remaining exiles who were living in Babylon to return. Who would want to return to Jerusalem in ashes? Many of the, the, the Jewish people living in exile had begun new lives. They, they had better lives in, Jeru- in, in exile than they did in Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Can you imagine perhaps leaving the comforts of, of life here in Australia and moving to sub-Saharan Africa? You wouldn't choose that. Um, the Jewish exiles had reasonably comfortable lives in exile. And now they are being called to return to, to Jerusalem. And And it wasn't easy. So that's the situation. That's, that's the reality of life in ancient Jerusalem. That's the world that... Zechariah was living in. That was the horrible reality. And one night, the prophet Zechariah is given a vision, a dream. And that's my second point. And and what does he learn in this dream? Look at verse 4 with me, if you have your Bibles open. Look at verse 4 with me. He learns from an angel that Jerusalem will not lie in ruin forever. He's given kind of this promise that the ashes and the rubble and the debris will one day be cleared. Jerusalem again shall be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. So there's this this kind of this promise that what what Zechariah sees now will not last forever. Look at verse 1. Zechariah introduces us to this mystery man. We don't know who he is. We don't know where he's, he comes from. I don't want to speculate too much about his identity. But we do know one thing about him. What's that one thing we know? He's got a measuring stick in his hand. He's a surveyor. He's, he's measuring up the city. Trying to figure out what? Look at verse 2. Trying to figure out the length and the width of the city. Why? Because... He's planning to build a wall. He's planning to rebuild the city. And then in this dream, look at what verses 3 and 4 say. Well, we're kind of told that there's no need for a city wall. An angel appears to Daniel with a message, and he says this. Run after that man who is measuring the walls, and tell him this. Jerusalem will be inhabited without walls. In other words, Jerusalem is, is growing. It will become so big that walls will not be able to contain the city. He's saying that in verse 4. He says that such a, a large multitude of people will come and live in the city of Jerusalem that, that, that perhaps the walls would burst. And all of these people... They will, they will, be, they will uh, live within the, ci- within the city, in this city without walls. Now, if there are no walls to the city, the next obvious question is, well, how do they stay safe? Who will protect them from harm? And we're told that God will be their, their protection. God will surround the city with a wall of fire. They will sleep safe and sound at night because they are protected not by walls, not by alarms or... Uh, alarms or locks verse 5 says that the presence of God will surround the city as a wall of fire how's that for a security system I remember at a session meeting a few years ago Gerald tried uh, suggesting that the best kind of security system we could get is the biggest strongest guy to stand at the church door so he's basically suggesting that we get a bouncer Perhaps in some ways a bouncer is better than the security system we have. Alarms scare people off, but bouncers, they take care of people. And what God is telling people here, what he's telling Zechariah here, is that the Lord will take care of his people. That he is strong enough and mighty enough and powerful enough to, to keep them safe, to protect them as they pursue this building project. There was a lot of anxiety in the hearts and minds of God's people at that time. There were people who were mocking them and persecuting them and it was very difficult to find resources to rebuild the walls and the temple. And so this is here is a word of comfort that God will be with them and protect them as they they start rebuilding the city of God. Look again at verse 5. We see that the city is filled with God's glory. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean to say that the city is filled with God's glory? Well, let me illustrate and I'll explain. Sometimes we go to these, um, when we travel, we go visit these spectacular cities in the world. Um, One of my favorite cities to visit is um sydney don't hold that against me and i love going to sydney because as you're you're kind of um on the ferry you can sit back and look at the opera house and the the harbor bridge and it's just so beautiful and you kind of admire the city it's in in a sense it's glorious it feels glorious the opera house it's it's iconic it's kind of the central focus of the city now um When the Bible says that God will be the glory of of the city, what it's saying is that the the object of, the the central object of that city, the thing that everyone is looking towards and looking at and focusing on is God. They're so in awe of God that they're not admiring all the other stuff that's in the city. They are admiring God himself. They are beholding God as we, we sung earlier. He is the object and the focus of their attention And so what Zechariah is doing here is he's calling on the people of God, on the Israelites, to make God the central focus of this building project. As they rebuild the city, they are looking towards God, who is uh, their help. And so Zechariah is given this dream of a new Jerusalem, of a, of, of a glorious city that is more incredible than, than he could ever imagine. And then what? Well, then the vision is over. It ends. And perhaps after the vision, he walks through the streets of Jerusalem again, and it's just a heap of rubble. And there's kind of this longing, I would imagine, for the better Jerusalem, For the Jerusalem that he saw in his dream, that the angel, that the the vision of Jerusalem that was shared with him. And that leads me now to a third and a final point. Which is that this is a reliable message here. Now there are a few ways that we could uh, understand this vision or apply this vision. I think there's kind of a literal application here. Um, look at verse 6. Verse 6 says, Up, up, flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord. For I have spread you abroad as the four winds of the heaven declares the, declares the Lord. Up, escape to Zion, you who dwell with the daughter of Babylon. What does that mean? Well, I think the most obvious interpretation of those, those verses is that God is calling on the Israelites who are living in exile. Remember I said that there were a bunch of Israelites or Jewish people that were living in exile that didn't want to return to Jerusalem. Well, the most obvious um, way to apply that is God is calling on all of his people to leave Babylon, to return to the city, and to start rebuilding it, helping their, their fellow Jews rebuild the city of Jerusalem. That's, that's the most obvious application. That's, what, that's kind of the immediate application of this passage. But there's also a spiritual application. So there's kind of a literal application. Zechariah is calling on, on these people to leave Babylon, return to Jerusalem, and help rebuild the temple and the city walls. Then there's a spiritual application of this passage. Because Zechariah wasn't just interested in rebuilding a city, was he? His goal was to rebuild the spiritual health of a nation. His aim was to get the Jewish people back on track spiritually. And the first step to doing this was to call them to repent. And you'll remember Joel a couple weeks ago preached on this in chapter 1. Chapter 1, what does chapter 1 say? Return to God and God will return to you. And so, this, in a sense, is a call to repentance as well. What is repentance? Repentance is turning away from sin. So, if faith is turning towards God, right? You're turning towards God and trusting Him. Repentance is turning away from sin. And chapter one starts off with repentance, and then, um, and then we get to chapter two. And look at verse 6 with me. You see those words again. Up, up, flee from the land of the north. What's he saying there? He's saying get up. Dare I say even wake up. And run. And what is he calling them to run away from? To run away from the north. To run away from, or verse 7 says, to escape from Babylon. And where is he calling them to run to? Jerusalem, thank you. Jerusalem, run away from Babylon, run towards Jerusalem. Now, if you know your Bible well, uh, Jerusalem and Babylon are also symbols. They're symbolic cities. Throughout the Bible, Babylon is a symbol of sin. Throughout the Bible, Jerusalem is a symbol of God's presence. And so, what he's saying there is he's saying, run away from sin. And run towards god 's presence, so that 's repentance. Let me illustrate what repentance is a little bit more. I remember as a as a, as a child, um, there was this cute black dog that used to run around our town, and you know I remember once going up to this cute black dog, and it started snarling at me and growling at me and, and then chasing me and I realized how dangerous this Dog really was. And so I started running as fast as I could away from this dog towards our house because I knew our house was a place of safety. Now, what is repentance? Repentance isn't um, trying to be a more moral person, repentance isn't trying to be a better you. Repentance is understanding that something is dangerous. As a child, I was understanding that this dog was dangerous, and that understanding of the danger led me to run away from it and run to a place of safety. And that's, I think, how I would describe faith and repentance. Repentance. Repentance is is understanding your sin. Understanding that it is dangerous. That it sets you, that it, it separates you from God. That it is harmful. Even, even if you don't necessarily see it harmful at first, you're, you're trusting That if God says it's harmful, then it is harmful and you're running from it and you're running towards God. That's faith and repentance. And and really what Zechariah is saying here in verses six and seven is he's saying he's saying run from Babylon, run from that place of danger and run to where? Run to God, who is the place of refuge and of safety. Now, there's something more here in this passage. Zechariah is also, he's calling on people to repent, but he's also reminding God's people of how gracious and merciful God is. We live in a, we live in a council culture, it's called. You, you do something wrong, then, it's, then, then you're done, you're fired. We think of that debacle with um, Andrew Thornburn. He was sacked just because he attended the wrong church. There's very little mercy in our society. We live in, a, a, in truly a, a cold, unforgiving world. The kind of world where you can get fired from your job because of a mistake, a minor mistake that you made as a teenager. And people in the modern West, they're getting canceled left, right, and center. And there's really not a lot of mercy forgiveness but Zechariah here shows us teaches us about a God who doesn't cancel people he cancels their sin and what's beautiful about this passage is the way that God speaks of his people think about this for centuries the Jewish people had broken God's law they had worshipped false idols and they had killed God's prophets They had lived in God's world. They ate God's food. They drank God's water. They breathed God's air. They rejected God. They turned on him. They ignored him. And imagine, you know, for a minute, if you had a friend like that, perhaps a flatmate, he eats your food, he drinks your milk, he doesn't pay rent, he calls you names, he ignores you. Is there a word that you would use to describe that flatmate? Probably not a nice word look at at okay, look at how God describes these people who have sinned against him, who have lived in his world and rebelled against him. Look at verse eight He calls these people the apple of his eye that's amazing. Why does he call them that? Because he has loved them before the foundation of the world, because he made a promise, a covenant to their father Abraham because he is their god and they are his people he is their father they are his children and even though they have sinned against him he he mercifully gives them the opportunity to repent he calls them back to himself even though they have sinned he forgives their sin obviously we know that there was a day that was coming that he would forgive their sin through Christ even though they were living in exile, he never forgets about them. He's there with them in exile. He still sends them prophets in exile to speak to them. Even though they are discouraged, he will never abandon, here, abandon them. And so there's, there are some there, there are two applications here that were meant for the people that were living in that time period. The one apl- application was a literal application. It was this call for. Um, the Jewish people living in Babylon to return to Jerusalem to help with the building project, to help rebuild the city. The second application was a spiritual application. He's calling people to faith and repentance. And there's also, I think, a third application. And we could say that there's a future application of this passage. Because Zechariah, he's not just speaking of his present, he's speaking of the future. He's speaking of a future day, isn't he? When God will come down and dwell with his people. And, and, and meet with his people face to face. And we see that in verse 5. In verse 5 it says, God says to Zechariah, I will be the glory in your midst. Then look at verse 10. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come to dwell in your midst. Look at verse 11. In that day, many nations will join themselves to the Lord, and they shall be my people, and I will dwell in their midst. There's there's a promise here, right? That God, the Almighty Maker of heaven and earth, will come down to this earth that He created, and that He will dwell on the earth with His people. It's an amazing promise. It's it's the kind of promise that makes Christianity different than every other religion. Every religion says, you need to try and work your way up to God. You need to be a more moral person so that God will accept you. You need to find your way to God. You need to, to take a pilgrimage to go find God. But Christianity teaches that God comes down to us. Which is exactly what we see in this passage. We see God dwelling with his people on the earth that he created. And we know from the New Testament that this prophecy, this dream, was fulfilled, in a sense, in the first coming of Christ, when Christ came down to this earth. What did the angel... A bit of Bible trivia for you. Maybe I'll buy you a coffee if you can answer it. What did the angel... uh, What was the name that the angel gave to Christ? in Matthew's Gospel. Emmanuel. What does that mean? God with... Wow, lots of coffees that I have to buy people. God with us. Okay? It's it's the fulfillment of Zechariah chapter 2. God with us. The glory of God with us. Jesus, doesn't the author... Of Hebrews called Jesus the radiance of the Father's glory, the image of the invisible God, the presence of God in human form. God Himself, through Jesus, showed His glory to the world as He walked the ground that we walk, as He showed the Father's love to the leper and to the woman caught in adultery. And to the tax collector and to the sinner. As he offered them grace and mercy. As he comforted people. Who were living not in physical rubble. But were, who were living lives of spiritual rubble. People's lives who had been broken by sin. And he comes to restore those people. And he comes to make those people new. Which is the gospel that we've all come to believe, isn't it? Because every one of us. Has been broken by sin. And we come to Jesus who is the glory of God. And he restores us. And he changes us. And he makes our lives new. And so. You know it's. The, the, the beautiful part of this is that. That it's anticipating a day to come. A better day. A day where. The thief on the cross is forgiven. And even yet, it's anticipating not just the first coming of Christ, but it's anticipating the second coming of Christ. It's it's anticipating the day when Christ will judge the living and the dead. Look at verse 9. Behold, I will shake my hand over them. And he's referring to the the nations that that um, that have oppressed the people of Israel. Behold, I will shake my hand over them. And they shall become plunder for those who serve them. So there's speaking of a coming judgment. It's speaking of the day when God will make all things right. It's speaking of a coming day of worship. Look at verse 10. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion. For behold, I come and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. It's, it's the, the kind of language that is being used here similar to that of Revelation. Look at verse 11. And Gerald preached on this a couple weeks ago. Uh, verse 11 reminds me of Revelation chapter 7. And many d- nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day. And, that sh- and they shall be my people. You know, there's this kind of promise of, of a future day when every nation, tribe, and tongue, all peoples, you know, Dutch people, French people, Germans, Italians, even Sri Lankans, <laughs> will come before God in worship. When God will make all things new. And so. This the incredible thing is that there's there's really multiple fulfillments and applications of this chapter, which is amazing. So there's future glory that it points to. But the point here. Is that God is always with us. He is with his people there in the rubble. He is with you now. As you face challenges in your life. He will be with us one day in future glory where we don't have to worry about all the sins and struggles and pains of life in this world. And perhaps I want to close with these words that will orient our minds to that coming day. I think we need to be reminded of that coming day as we face you know, the various struggles and pains in this life. And this is taken from the final chapters of Revelation. John says this. And he's seeing it actually kind of what Zechariah is talking about here. I saw a new heavens and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among his people. Isn't that what Zechariah said? God's dwelling place is now among his people. They will be his people, and God himself will be be with them and be their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on this throne said this. I am making all things new. Then he said write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. I'll leave you with that. Why don't we come before God. And, um, and thank him for his word. Let's pray. Our father in heaven. We thank you for the comfort that you've offered us tonight, and even the challenge that you might help us to see the um, how heinous our sins are, how dangerous our sins are. That you might work in our hearts to bring us to true repentance, but that we might also have that that comfort of the gospel. That um, that there's this promise that we have these precious promises in your word. That you have come down to us in the person of Jesus Christ. That you are with us now through the presence of your spirit. And that one day we will join you in your glorious presence. Lord, we thank you um, for the ways that your word ministers to us tonight. Lord, take it, use it, and apply it to our hearts and our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.